This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here with another China History Podcast. We're going to definitely go into stoppage time in this episode, but I feel confident we'll be able to finish off the life and times of the Song Emperor Huizong. We left off last time in the year 1125. The Jurchen army was camped outside the Kaifeng city walls. Huizong had already abdicated, and his son, the Prince of Huan, became the Qingzong Emperor. The Jingkang era had been proclaimed just as the Jin army were crossing the Yellow River into China proper. Fortunately, or unfortunately for Huizong, he had no idea what kind of weight was going to come crashing down on his head. His minders had kept him in the dark and shielded Huizong from the seriousness of the situation. He thought he could work out a deal with Walibu, the son of the Jin dynasty founder Aguda. But Walibu wasn't in a deal-making mood. He knew the Song imperial government was cornered and hadn't any options, so great was the mismatch in military power. Walibu and everyone else in the Jurchen camp had one thing and one thing only on their minds, and that was all the imperial swag waiting to be snatched along with all the other riches of Kaifeng. On January 4th, 1126, Hui Zong, newly abdicated and preparing for his retirement, headed first to the Laozi Shrine in Bozhou, northernmost Anhui province. He could do it today in two and a half hours, but in Hui Zong's time, this was a good two-day trek. Hui Zong's entourage included his Empress Zheng, most, but not all, of his children, a hundred attendants, as well as three of Huizong's most trusted officials, Cao, Tongguan, and Zhu Mian. Huizong naively had written, quote, Because I worry about the ancestral temples, the temples of the soil and grain, and all the people, I have transferred the great seal to my ear in order to conform to heaven's desires above and to stop the armies below, in the hope that those near return and those far off become obedient. The world becomes peaceful, the dynasty has unlimited blessings, and those inside and outside enjoy the pleasures of peace. If in this way the enemy soldiers put down their weapons, after there is general peace, I will, with all my heart, observe the Dao and happily live in reclusion." May heaven be my witness. I do not dare to lie. Once the situation is settled, it will be a great sin to covet my old responsibilities. When the ancient sage kings Yao of Tang and Shun of Yu took the blame on themselves, things suddenly flourished. Let heaven grant me the heart of such sages. Unquote. Qin Zong, in the meantime, was wondering whether he should stay or should he go. His advisors were mixed on the subject. Some said, get out of town, flee for your life, preserve the dynasty. Some said to sit tight and wait it out, just pay them off. 
His closest official who stayed with him in this desperate hour was Li Gang. Li Gang had faithfully served Hui Zong, and now he was working for the sun. On January 7th, 1126, as Hui Zong went out the back door, Walibu showed up at the front door. Qin Zong immediately sent an envoy to deal with him. If Qin Zong thought he'd buy off Walibu cheaply, he was wrong. The envoy tried to cut a deal after having been given a maximum figure to offer, and as a cherry on top, he handed over 10,000 ounces of gold to Walibu. About 13 million at today's prices, 81 million RMB. These negotiations were all about money and annual tribute. Walibu was looking to get as much as he could out of this situation, and like everyone else in the region, he knew China was rich. After a bit of horse trading, a deal was struck. The annual tribute was increased to 2 million strings of cash, 5 million ounces of gold, 50 million ounces of silver, 2 million lengths of silk, 10,000 horses, oxen, and mules, 1,000 camels, and the three prefectures of Taiyuan, Zhongshan, and Hejian had to be turned over to the Jin. And to ensure compliance, Qin Song had to hand over some hostages. Within a week, the treaty was signed. Well, it was one thing to agree to all these demands for gold, silver, and silk, but it was another thing to actually cough it up. Paying off the Western Xia, the Liao, and now the Jin had put a severe strain on the northern Song finances. The reserves inside their version of Fort Knox were running very low. But with Wally Bu breathing down his neck, Qin Song had to comply or the situation was sure to deteriorate. In order to produce the gold and silver and the quantities demanded, the palace had to be stripped of everything, and nobles were requested to hand over all their wealth and these two precious metals. The temples would be next. This period, where the Jin army is outside the gates, was a very tense and politically tortuous time. Essentially, Walibu and his army had their boots on the neck of the Song government and were slowly bleeding them dry. Walibu knew the Song were defenseless, and try as they might to negotiate, they had nothing to bargain with. Walibu planned to bleed them dry first before finishing them off. On January 7, 1126, they handed over 300,000 ounces of gold and 12 million ounces of silver. I'm not sure what the spot price was back in the 12th century, but at today's prices, that's about $375 million in gold and $225 million in silver. 600 million bucks. 3.75 billion RMB. 440 million euros. I mean, even by today's standards... That's a lot of bracelets and necklaces. But this amount, as great as it was, fell far short to the mark. I can't even imagine the desperation and fear inside the palace as the government scrambled to find as much gold and silver as possible. Even the citizens of Kaifeng were called upon to turn in everything they had. The government, you know, offering promissory notes of 20 strings of cash per each ounce of gold and, and one and a half strings for an ounce of silver. A couple weeks later, the Song court coughed up another 500 ounces of gold and 8 million ounces of silver, mostly melted-down cutlery and whatnot, turned in by the common folk. Still, Walibu wasn't satisfied. And to add pressure inside the palace, 
word reached Qinsong that the Jurchens had started plundering the royal tombs, though no emperor's tombs had been defiled yet. On February 10th, the nightmare suddenly came to an end. Walibu and his Jin army packed up and left. After snatching one of Huizong's sons, Prince Shu, everyone inside the capital breathed a sigh of relief. Let's introduce the other terror of the Jin army. This was Wenyan Yenhan. He was a nephew of Aguda and one of the top generals in the Jin army. Walibu was the right vice marshal and Yenhan was the left vice marshal. Walibu's mission was Kaifeng. Nianhan's mission was Taiyuan up in Shanxi. Nianhan had served the Jin dynasty founder well in crushing the Liao Kitan dynasty. These two basically were the main torturers of the Song royal family. Huizong and practically everyone surnamed Zhao are really going to learn to hate these guys. Walibu and Nianhan, by the time they breathe their last, are going to really enjoy having some fun making the lives of Huizong and Qinzong and their extended families as miserable and humiliating as possible. So Walibu took off, and just when the Song court breathed a sigh of relief, Nianhan started to march on Kaifeng. So fast and furious did Walibu's army come down on the Song army, they hadn't enough time to organize and get prepared. The shock had worn off, and now they were ready to face off against Nianhan's army. Nianhan had heard about how much booty Walibu managed to cart back up to the north and decided he wanted a piece of that action too. So he started to make his own demands for loot. But first, Qinzong gave the following orders once Walibu's army left. Quote, the Jin are returning home heavily laden. There are many carts fully loaded. And they have countless captive women, adding to their high opinion of themselves. If we attack them, we will surely be successful. Our generals and soldiers are eager to fight, unquote. After being refused by Qinzong, Nianhan started to march on Song China, which was in clear violation of the treaty, just signed with Walibu, but the Jurchens having the upper hand and the arrangement felt the terms of the treaty didn't actually apply to them. Huizong, in the meantime, was heading southeast, first via a cargo boat, then a mule, and other transport. By January 15th, Huizong's entourage reached Zhenjiang in Jiangsu province. There he waited things out in relative safety and waited for word from Kaifeng. Since his group was on the run, it was referred to as the Mobile Court. Things were horrible in Kaifeng. The Song dynasty was facing extinction, and somebody had to be blamed for this reversal of fortune. With a new emperor on the throne, the target of reprisals was all focused on Huizong's officials. If anyone deserved to be blamed for the current dismal situation, it was them. There started a furious backlash directed at all of Huizong's men, Cai Jing, Tong Guan, Wang Fu, and the eunuch Liang Shicheng. Wang Fu was stripped of all his posts and titles and sentenced to exile, but only made it as far as the city walls before he was beheaded. Qin Zong at once saw what was going on with his officials seeking retribution, so he told everyone to cool it. But this was 
going to be another in a long line of Chinese political paybacks going back to the Shang Dynasty. After Wang Fu came Liang Shicheng, once all-powerful, now demoted and quickly driven to suicide. Qin Zong had his own gang of advisors. They were screaming for blood and urged Qin Zong to go after Hui Zong and bring back all his officials who were chiefly responsible for the mess they were in and execute them for their crimes. They pointed to the fact that Hui Zong himself had said he brought on all this bad luck due to listening to his officials. So this was used as one of the main reasons to launch a bloody purge of Hui Zong's advisors. No one was more closely associated with the reign of Hui Zong than Tsai Jing. He and anyone else even remotely related to him were demoted. The cause of reform and all those who carried that banner and persecuted the conservatives were now facing the backlash themselves. Everyone all over the world knows this thing always happens. One party is in and then savages the party who is out for what they did to them when they were in. Then when the party who's in later gets booted out, the whole cycle repeats itself. You know how it is. It didn't just happen in the 12th century. Not only did reformers feel the heat, venerable conservatives who had lived in infamy for two decades were lionized and statues were built to honor them. Sima Guang was a good example, even though he had been dead since 1086, because he was sort of a marquee conservative. Qin Zong's men held him up as an upstanding example. So, Hui Zong was safe in Zhenjiang, no doubt thoroughly enjoying the local vinegars. He was 400 miles to the south, and Zhenjiang is located on the south side of the Yangtze. If Hui Zong would have just stayed there. But no, Qin Zong on March 1st, 1126, orders his father back to Kaifeng, believing the coast was clear. Actually, Qin Zong's advisors had filled his head with the notion that Hui Zong was going to possibly set up a rival government in the south, so better to call him back where they could keep an eye on him. In his final years and during his most painful and desperate hours, I'm sure, Hui Zong asked himself over and over, why did he leave the relative safety of such a cultured and beautiful place such as Zhenjiang to return to Kaifeng? Qin Zong's new team were chomping at the bit to get their hands on Tsai Jing and the rest of Hui Zong's A-team, who had fled south with him. Poor Tsai Jing was in his 80s, blind, feeble, defenseless. No matter. No one more than Tsai Jing symbolized the excesses and faults of this regime. He was going to be made to pay for his heavy-handedness all these years. And so, in April 1126, Hui Zong returned to the capital. It was quite a triumphant reception, and Hui Zong was decked out in his finest Taoist robes. Qin Zong sequestered him right away in a place where he could be watched constantly. The witch hunt for any and all of Hui Zong's reformer officials went on unabated. They didn't just go after Tsai Ching and his allies. They went after all these Taoists, too, who had risen to high positions of power thanks to their manipulative ways with Hui Zong. By July 1126, the persecution of Tsai Jing switched into high gear, and in his eighth decade, he was banished. And as the story goes, so reviled was his name that along the way, vendors would 
refused to sell his party any food, and poor old Tsai Jing, once so high and mighty, died a rather pitiful death on the way to his place of banishment. As for all the others who accompanied Hui Zong back to Kaifeng, Tong Guan, Tsai Yo, and others, they were all whacked. Tong Guan's severed head was displayed in the central market with a sign listing all his crimes. Hui Zong could say nothing. He had no voice in this government. He was holed up in his little palace and under very strict control. He was aware of all the vengeance being meted out against his former officials, who you'll recall from the first Hui Zong episode went after all of Zhe Zong's officials. He couldn't interfere. In time, the relationship between Hui Zong and Qin Zong deteriorated, and it became an open secret that Hui Zong was a virtual prisoner. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, Walibu gone, the fighting was still going on in Taiyuan. Nian Han's army was pounding the Song forces. Attempts were made to relieve the Chinese under siege by Nian Han's army, but all came to naught. After a 260-day siege, it all ended on September 3, 1126. The entire population of Taiyuan either starved to death or came pretty close. And now with Taiyuan taken, Nian Han's eyes turned south in the direction of Kaifeng. He was only 280 miles away, which meant the Jin army was only about three or four weeks away from the gates of Kaifeng. With this in mind, the powers that be inside Kaifeng all put their heads together and fulminated over their options. There was a strong call to pull up stakes and move the capital to Chang'an, 250 miles due west. This was called, quote, moving the capital. The capital was wherever the emperor was. By strongly urging Qinzong to move the capital, what they were actually saying was, hey, get out of town, Holmes. In the end, they ditched this idea. They still thought they could buy the Jurchens off. Nianhan was making a grab for the three prefectures north of the Yellow River that the Song army had fought and negotiated so hard to get. Qinzong argued forcefully about this, but with things looking the way they were, he decided to send his nephew Prince Go, Zhao Go, to Nianhan's camp to try and palm off a land-for-peace deal. Prince Go was Hui Zong's ninth son and the younger half-brother of Qin Zong. I mention this because he, Zhao Go, and an accompanying official in their journey north to meet with Nian Han, actually turned into a case of ships passing in the night, and before he knew it, he was way, way behind enemy lines. Then he found out about what was going on in the capital and that the Jin invasion had already started, so he laid low and stayed out of sight. And you'll be interested to know this Chao Go, he will be the only one who will escape capture by the Jurchens. After getting word of what was going down in Kaifeng, he will slowly make his way down to Lin'an in present-day Hangzhou, and it will be there that he will reconstitute the Song Dynasty, and he'll reign for 35 years as the first southern Song Dynasty emperor, Gao Zong. If everyone thought the worst was over when Walibu left, they were badly mistaken. Nianhan was just getting started. As soon as his army reached the city walls and they got themselves all in place, around November 1126, Nianhan sent word 
that if they agreed to surrender all territory north of the Yellow River, then that would be that, and Yan Han would pack up and go home. Qin Zong considered the circumstances and realized he had only one choice. So he gave in to this demand that the Yellow River henceforth be the border between Qin and Song. He was just buying time, and everyone in the palace collectively prayed that this would satisfy the Jurchens, and they would declare victory and head back north. By November 30th, Walibu decided to come back. So now, Qin Zong had to deal with these twin terrors at the same time. And backing these two up were 100,000 hardened Jin troops. In November, beginning of December 1126, the siege of Kaifeng was now ready to get underway. This time period is only a quarter century after the First Crusade ended and Jerusalem had fallen to the forces of the Catholic Crusaders. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is going to be a very cruel winter inside the city walls of Kaifeng. As the Jin army began setting up all their siege equipment and got all their ducks in a row, Envoys were going back and forth between Qinzong and Walibu and Yanhan, frantically trying to negotiate. The Song envoys did everything except beg for mercy. That would come later, after a high degree of suffering under extremely stressful and hopeless conditions. The Song army tried everything they could to slow things down with the Jin siege preparations. Anything that looked or smelled like a potential projectile of some sort was catapulted in the general direction of the Jurchens. But it was a mouse fighting an elephant. Wally Bu and Yen Han kept trying to trick Qin Zong into coming out to talk to them personally, or they you know, demanded some high-up royals to be given to them as hostages for the negotiations. No one budged. Finally, a Hail Mary was attempted by the Song army, and they flooded out of the city gates to face the Jin army head-on, and it was like walking into a buzzsaw. They were decimated. The Jin army kept coming at them, and in time, after there was nothing else that the Kaifeng city defenders could throw at them, the Jurchens started climbing up the walls and breached them. And anyone who could fight, soldier or civilian, joined in. Since capture meant a fate worse than death, what else could one do? Let me quote from Pat Ebrey's book, quote, On the morning after the Jurchens took the outer walls, Qin Zong appeared at the virtue-revealed gate, to speak to the soldiers and the people. He asked them what they wanted to do, given the current situation, saying no one would be blamed for the failure to hold the walls. People began shouting questions and ideas so informally that some used the ordinary pronouns, you and I, instead of your majesty and your subject. Some thanked him for staying in the city and not abandoning them. In the end, though, the Jurchens were just... Too tough, too good at fighting, and too numerous. They captured the city, and in the heavy, falling snow, they just 
torched it. Kaifeng in 1126 was still the greatest city in the world. Not anymore. Right about now, the Song officials pulled out the emergency plan and just begged for mercy and prayed for the most orderly and dignified surrender as possible. They didn't get either. The Jin opening salvo was to demand some hostages in order to keep the peace and guarantee performance of demands by the Song. They wanted Huizong and Prince Chen, chief among them. Prince Chen was Qin Zong's son and heir. Qin Zong replied to them thusly, quote, Concerning your desire for the senior emperor and the heir apparent to depart for the suburbs, now that the city has fallen, the power over life and death belongs in your court. So how could I resist? However, between a father and a son, there are things their hearts cannot bear to do. What if I go myself to your headquarters to ask for sympathy and beg for their lives? And therefore, on November 30th, Qin Zong went to Walibu and Nian Han's camp to negotiate personally. Naturally, they made him wait and, you know, told him, hey, we got no time to see the emperor of China today. You know, when Qin Zong finally came face to face with them, he basically begged them to leave them be and that he promised they would send massive amounts of tribute to the Jin for generations to come. Nian Han's reply to all this was, quote, Is there a person or object that is not already mine? They dismissed Qin Zong and then began making the first of their demands. They said they wanted 10 million bolts of silk and satin. I don't know how they measured all that in yards, but it's probably more than Walmart or Tesco could sell in a year. They also wanted 5 million bars of gold, with each bar weighing 50 ounces. On top of this, they demanded 10 million bars of silver. When the Jin officials marched into the city to begin their survey, they opened the imperial storehouses and found more than enough silk to fill the quota. But as far as silver and gold went, it wasn't looking too good, as everyone had pretty much been squeezed dry. In no uncertain terms, the Song officials were told to go search every nook and cranny of the city and find that gold and silver or else. Therefore, over the next couple weeks, there was an organized effort to convince the populace that they should hand over everything and everything they had that was either AU or AG. There was nowhere near enough gold to even come close to the 5 million bars being demanded. Same with silver. And then, during this most desperate hour, Walibu and Nianhan began barking out more demands. Give me 10,000 horses. Give me these weapons. Give me this cash money. Give me that wine. 3,000 bottles, if you please. Everything was handed over in hopeless attempts to placate these guys. You know. By now, they had all kinds of traders working for them and, you know, whispering in their ears because the demands went from these, you know, trivial things to paintings, to books, documents. Then they'd demand specific works by Sima Guang and Su Shi. The list of ad hoc demands just never ended. Walibu and Nianhan must have been thoroughly enjoying themselves. What else could they get? They demanded those precious nine cauldrons that Huizong was so proud of, and his tuned bells as well. They had to hand that over. All kinds of books and whatnot that Huizong had called for during his time. His precious Taoist canon. They asked for these too. After they emptied the palace of all these things, the next set of demands concerned the sending of people. Physicians, musicians, astronomers, workmen, craftsmen. 
We know all this because meticulous lists were kept of anything that exited the palace. That included goods and people, including the Jowl family royals and clansmen. 25,000 ancient bronze vessels were among the booty. They also raided the Imperial Pharmacy and made off with the best TCM had to offer back then. And one million gene of silk thread also on the list. But the genes were stamping their feet and demanding the same old thing every conqueror has wanted since the most ancient days of recorded history. Gold and silver. And they weren't getting even close to the numbers that were being demanded. By mid-December, a more organized effort was made to use drastic actions to get the common folk to give up all their rings, earrings, and hidden wealth. Former eunuchs and other informers were employed by the churchians to snitch and tell who had what, and then they'd get a 10% cut if any of the precious metal was found. The eunuchs knew all the details of the royal family and, you know, who was who. This search for gold and silver carried on into January 1127. The searches became more violent as the days passed. The, the quota still wasn't even close to being filled, and the Song officials hadn't given up begging to have it lowered. Anyone living in Kaifeng that January and February 1127 had it rough. The Jin army had the place locked down. Nobody could leave. I don't know if you've ever been to northern Hunan in the dead of winter, but it ain't too tropical. Fuel was running out, food was gone, human flesh was openly being sold inside the city walls. Now the time had come to start tearing down parts of government buildings, palace buildings, anything that could be burned as fuel for warmth or cooking. Huizong's precious northeast Marchmount Park that he had built at a ridiculous cost and with agonizing hardship for the people tasked to go out all over the country to search out rare trees and plants and rocks, too. All this had to be dragged back to Kaifeng for Huizong's Park. By 1120, so loud was the outcry in fulfilling this task that it led indirectly to the Fangla Rebellion, which turned out to be a massive hit to the Song Dynasty's survival. Now these trees, too, were cut down and burned. Up till now, Huizong had never left Kaifeng. And he rarely ever left the palace walls. Because he wasn't a warrior emperor who saw China in the course of a military career, he needed China to be brought to him. So he built this park at a hideous expense and brought all these different plants, trees, and rocks there so that he could wander at his leisure and feel close to the land he ruled over. Like any former junkie who wishes they had all that money that they spent on dope, Quaidzong must have felt that Gold and silver spent on this park adjacent to the palace would have been more than enough to buy the Song out of their current problem. It was a mad free-for-all with all the people desperately trying to get firewood by tearing down all these government buildings. Every attempt by Qinzong to charm Walibu or Nianhan and to show his respect was just thrown back in his face in one humiliating way or another. January 10th, 1127, Qinzong left the palace gates and went to face his torturers. As he waited for Walibu and Nianhan, he was you know, treated in the usual shabby, disrespectful way. 
Jurchin officials cornered him and shouted that he must make the Yellow River the boundary line between China and Jin territory. And they demanded a, a princess for one of the Jurchin princes. And then they presented a list of demands for 2,000 items of court paraphernalia, 500 commoner women, 500 musicians, you know, among other things. Then they forced Qinzong in his own hand to write an edict demanding all the gold and silver inside Kaifeng be handed over and that he would personally be held for ransom until the quota was filled. Then they had this notice plastered up all over the place. With Qinzong a prisoner inside the Jin camp and out of the picture for the time being, Huizong was called back into action. He called for any and all ceremonial objects, no matter how sacred, to be handed over. By January 19, 1127, amid starvation, cold, diseases raging throughout the city, they had managed to scrape together 160,000 ounces of gold and 6 million ounces of silver. And then right about now, Jin officials were beginning to inspect all the Song princesses. There were a lot of them, and these were going to be one of the main prizes for the top Jurchen officers and officials. There were actually thousands of palace women, princesses, consorts, performers, serving women, courtesans, musicians, wives and daughters of officials, over 5,000 in all. They had to do the unthinkable with these women. They handed them over to the Jin army. The highest ranking and most desirable were taken by the officers. The soldiers got the rest. On February 6, 1127, the Jin deposed Zong this way, quote, At dawn on the 6th, the two commanders ordered the Song to enter the green enclosure camp. The Song officials all accompanied him. The Jin soldiers, who waved that the Imperial Guards should leave, dismounted their horses on arrival at camp. Qinzong was ordered to kneel to hear the edict, demoting him to commoner. Nian Han ordered the Jin officials to take off the younger ruler's hat and robe. The loyal Song officer Li Ruoshui held on to the imperial garment and cursed the commanders. He was dragged out by the soldiers. Pretty much all this time, Huizong was kept somewhat in the dark as far as the details were concerned. So you can imagine how he must have felt when the enormity of the situation finally sunk in. Huizong was forced to lead the procession of the entire Zhao royal family and clan out of the city of Kaifeng. When Huizong arrived in the Jin camp for the first time, he was harassed over the Zhang Jue affair. Remember that from the last episode? He was the Casas Belli for the Jin, the defector who the Song generals had welcomed into their fold. Everything was blamed on this. If only Huizong hadn't to talk to Zhang Jue, none of this would have happened. Yeah, right. It was a wonderful excuse, and the official one. Huizong told them, quote, Your country made this a pretext, and now the disaster has reached the point where my city has fallen and my country is lost. What document would there be? Whether I live or die depends on fate. You do not need to make this pretext. So, everyone got rounded up. The entire Song imperial family. An inventory was taken and everyone's name was checked off the list. Huizong, as he was taken captive, was said to have been defiant, reviling Walibu and Nianhan for breaking their end of the treaty and the oaths they had given. Most of Huizong's consorts, palace ladies, daughters, daughters-in-law, 
all were passed to the Jurchenot soldiers and officers. Huizong was reunited with Qinzong, and there was a tearful reunion. Huizong was allowed to keep close with part of his family. With him was his empress, Empress Zheng, four of his consorts, 28 of his sons, plus 16 grandsons and seven sons-in-law. After three months of stripping Kaifeng of any and all assets, on February 9th, 1127, the people found out their emperor wasn't ever coming back, and that the new emperor wasn't even surnamed Zhao. The Jin chose for their new puppet emperor a former grand counselor, Zhang Bangchang. His new dynasty was called the Chu. Zhang Bangchang, in his heart, was still loyal to the Song, and we'll see as soon as the Jurchens leave, he will go against them and take steps to legitimize the succession of the throne to the escaped Prince Go, who would be enthroned on May 1st, 1127. It was probably at this point that all concerned were having regrets about not moving the capital and for not keeping Huizong in relative safety down in Zhenjiang. Qinzong was also probably regretting allowing his officials to engage in these revenge attacks against their political rivals rather than focusing on preparing for the impending uh, Jurchen attack. Shortly after the announcement about the new emperor, all the imperial family was slowly transferred to the Jurchen camp. Women who resisted were dealt with violently, and several examples were made of some who resisted. It was quite a come down to be living one day as a high-born palace woman with all the luxuries, rights, and privileges that came with the territory, and then the next day living in squalor and facing some very rough handling with some very rough men. Many even became prostitutes and playthings for common soldiers. They, they suffered every manner of indignity. A Jurchen writer named Ke Gong wrote a record of the Song captives. He said 16,000 were taken captive and led to the Jin camps. 2,000 died during the two- to four-month stay there. Walibu and Yanhan had a gas mentally torturing the captives and humiliating them, especially Qinzong, Huizong, and their empresses. There was nothing like pushing the high-born and once-mighty around as far as you know, entertainment goes. Girls and women were committing suicide left and right. Huizong continued to try and bargain with his captors. By March, Kaifeng had pretty much been wrung dry, and after a job well done, the Jin forces were ready to leave back to their homeland. Qinzong and Huizong were handed clothing, much like the common people wore. No more imperial or Taoist robes allowed. On March 23rd, the quota for gold and silver was declared fulfilled. The captured women made up for the shortfalls. So 45-year-old Huizong was about to embark on a field trip, never to return. March 1127, Huizong began heading north. He might have been thinking about the fall of the later Jin, the puppet state of the Kitan Liao, founded 191 years before by Shi Jingtang in 936. His successor, Shi Chonggui, defied his Liao masters, and for this, the later Jin was quashed, and the later Jin emperor, Shi Chonggui, was taken into captivity. That was in 947. This emperor lived on for 17 years and died 118 years before Huizong was born. The 15,000 or so captives were led north in seven convoys. 
The first convoy had 2,200 clansmen, male nobles, 3,400 clanswomen, and female nobles. The second convoy was small, only 35 people, women, children, including the wife and mother of Prince Go, you know, the one Zhao royal who got away. These were consorts Wei and Xing. Nian Han's son personally managed this one. The third convoy had the wives and concubines of Qinzong, along with a couple princesses, 37 in all. Huizong was in the fourth convoy of 1,940 persons. Also traveling with Huizong were consorts, two of his brothers, 19 sons, grandsons, and sons-in-law. And to round out the convoy were a bunch of maids who attended to Huizong and his fellow royals. Walibu took care of the fifth convoy, which had 103 princesses and consorts of princes, plus 142 serving women. The sixth convoy had 3,180 women and 3,412 commoners who had special skills wanted by the Jurchens up north. The final convoy was led by Nianhan. Qinzong was in this one, along with his sons, daughters, 12 officials, including Sun Fu, He Zhuo, and Qin Gui. More about Qin Gui in a moment. Convoys 1 through 6 went to Yanjing first. The seventh convoy with Qinzong took a circuitous route towards Taiyuan and then east towards Beijing. They were divvied up into groups of 500 and driven like cattle by several dozen Jurchen soldiers. All captives either walked, rode on horseback, or in an ox cart. There was no chow line or, or shirtang. When they set up camp for the night, everyone had to fend for themselves, and gather their own firewood, cook their own food. April 5th, 1127, they crossed the Yellow River. Huizong got to see it for his first time. As they made their way north, the soldiers were already making a horrible situation even worse by forcing themselves on the captive women, no matter how high-born they were. April 15th, they arrived in Yingzhou. The following day, one of Huizong's brothers succumbed to starvation. In Kaifeng, under regular circumstances, the death of the emperor's brother would call for all kinds of rituals and ceremonies. Now the emperor's brother was just dumped in a horse trough and cremated. Eight days later, they made it to Jending. This is around present-day Shijiazhuang. All this time, Huizong was still hoping for a miracle and that Prince Go was going to send a rescue party. Prince Go was now the Gaozong Emperor, and the last thing any emperor needs is a rival emperor, so he wasn't too anxious to rescue his father. On May 13th, they arrived in Yanjing. Huizong's group had by now been whittled down to about 900. They had trekked from Kaifeng to Xiangzhou to Xingzhou to Junding, and now they were in Yanjing. Huizong had four more stops before he would arrive at his Final destination in a desolate part of a desolate part of central Heilongjiang. A lot of first-person accounts about this time have made it down to us. There's quite a bit of information. The two main official accounts of these hard years came from Cai Tiao and Cao Xun. Huizong only now was getting first news of what had happened to all the others. When other convoys arrived in Yanjing, the attrition rate had slimmed their ranks. And Huizong led the relief efforts and made sure all the newcomers, you know, had all the basics. Suddenly, that summer, Walibu died. This was right about the time 
Qin Zong and his convoy rolled into town. Hui Zong was only in Yanjing for four months, and after that, the Jin decided to move the two emperors further north. When they pulled out of Yanjing, about 1,000 in the convoy, people lined the streets and bowed to the emperors. From there, they went to the Jin central capital. They weren't in China proper anymore. The hard times were really upon them now. They stayed there for a year. Next stop was the supreme capital, located about where Harbin is today. They got there in the summer, August 1127. When they got to the supreme capital, I mentioned this in that CHP 28 Northern Song episode, they were all forced to participate in this traditional jurchen ritual. They were offerings being made to this shrine to Aguda. Let me quote from Pat Ebri, who quoted one of the original sources. Quote, At dawn, several thousand enemy soldiers loudly entered the camp and forced the Song party to go to the temple. The two emperors and empresses took off only their outer garments. The rest all had to bare their upper bodies and wrap a sheepskin around their waists. They were linked with a felt cord tied to their hands. The two emperors led the way into the curtained hall, along with the sheep, to be sacrificed. In the hall was a tent of purple curtains with precious vessels laid out on a hundred mats. Various barbarian tunes were played. Jin Emperor Taizong, this is uh, Wu Chi Mai, remember him from the last episode, uh, with his wife and concubines, his officials and slaves, knelt in the barbarian fashion. Taizong personally took two sheep to be offered in the hall. Everyone from the two emperors on down knelt. The ruler proclaimed four amnesties, and the two emperors were given ranks and clothes, then waited with the princes in a small tent outside the hall. The empresses and consorts then entered the palace, were granted favors. Then, after a while, it was announced that Empresses Zheng and Zhu, that was uh, Qin Zong's wife, would return to their places. At the completion of the ceremony, they changed into barbarian clothes and came out. Paddy Brie uh, then continues, quote, After the ceremony, the women, still partly naked, were divided up. Three hundred women from consorts Wei and Xing down were assigned to the palace laundry to work as palace slaves. Others were given to particular men. After Empress Zhu returned from this ceremony, she tried to hang herself. When she was revived, she killed herself by throwing herself into a pool of water. The next day, Hui Zong and Qin Zong were given humiliating titles. Lord of Confused Virtue and Lord of Double Confusion, respectively. Unquote. Next stop on the Magical Mystery Tour was Hanzhou. This was a good two-month trek from Harbin, where the supreme capital was located. Hanzhou was just over the border in Jilin, around the city of Siping, where 820 years later, Mao Zedong's PLA will fight one of the bloodiest and most decisive battles of the Chinese Civil War. In Hanzhou, Huizong got to see 920 members of the Imperial Clan for the first time since this nightmare started. That's all that was left of this group of 5,600. Only 16.4% made it this far. By July 1130, the Jin leaders began to feel some heat and started to think the two Song emperors were still too close to Han China. 
So they move them again, further away. And this is the last time. And it's in this place, called Five Nations Fort, Wu Guocheng, that Huizong lived out his final years. This is located in present-day Yilan County in uh, central Heilongjiang. All of Huizong's clansmen were sent away to different destinations. Huizong begged and pleaded to keep the family together, but to no avail. Only six other family members accompanied Huizong to Five Nations Fort, all men of his generation. Qinzong and Empress Zheng arrived soon after. Huizong lasted there for four miserable years. He stayed busy teaching his children and reading. <laughs> Believe it or not, his calligraphy was still quite prized, and people would send Huizong gifts just for the, you know, obligatory thank you note that he would send in his splendid Shoujin-style calligraphy. It was still quite prized, even up in this northeast corner of China. In 1132 or 1133, Huizong had a little excitement when one of his sons and sons-in-laws accused him of conspiracy to overthrow the Jin. An investigation proved the accusations groundless and the accusing family members were executed. Gaozong sent spies and the occasional envoy to the Jin court to get news of Huizong and offer deals for his release. No luck. Sometimes the Jin wouldn't even let the envoys return. In early 1135, Wu Mai died, Emperor Taizong. He was replaced by a much more Han-friendly emperor. This one named Shizong was a grandson of Aguda. He granted an amnesty to Consort Wei and a few other palace women and allowed them to join Huizong in Five Nations Fort. On April 21st, 1135, Huizong died. Two years later, Nian Han was executed. The Jin were already eating their own. Seven years later, in May of 1142, Gaozong signed a peace treaty with the Jin. His mother, Consort Wei, was allowed to return to the south along with Huizong and Empress Zheng's coffins. And Gaozong's first wife, Empress Xing's coffin, was also returned. Qinzong, he was sent to the supreme capital. He stayed there until his death in 1161. He had several children in captivity. Of the 16 sons who accompanied Huizong to Five Nations Fort, three died in the first year, two more died shortly thereafter. When Huizong died, he had 11 sons remaining to mourn him. They were all given wives and raised families at Five Nations Fort. Of Huizong's five wives, including Empress Zheng, all being over 35 years old, were not considered highly in demand by the church and soldiers and always got to stay with Huizong. Huizong had 14 more children in captivity. Huizong was attended to by eunuchs throughout this ordeal. His most loyal official, Cai Tiao, stayed with Huizong till the bitter end. Cai Tiao's writings of this period have been one of the best records, even though he self-censored the content so as not to, you know, appear ungrateful in front of the Jin censors. If you're wondering why they kept moving Huizong further and further north... There's a story behind that. Do you remember CHP episode 95 covering Yue Fei? He was a great and legendary military man. He served under Gaozong and was even present at the Siege of Kaifeng, the second one in the horrible year of 1127. Yue Fei escaped capture and death and lived on to fight back against the Jin, pushing them back as they advanced towards the Yangtze. 
Yue Fei got a bit of shine on him for these victories, and the emperor made him a general. Because the Song army had, you know, sort of gotten its act together, and generals like Yue Fei were giving it to the Jurchens but good, the powers in the Jin capital decided to keep moving Huizong as far away from the action as possible. They left nothing to chance. Yue Fei, you'll recall, had that tattoo on his back that read Jin Zhong Bao Guo, and, you know, who could forget the immortal words associated with Yue Fei? Huan Wo He Shan, return my rivers and mountains. But you'll recall the evil minister Qin Gui, who had, you know, made his way from Jurchen captivity to the southern Song court. He advised Gao Zong to take the appeasement route with the warring Jin. And this is exactly what Emperor Gao Zong did. And as part of this peace he made with the Jin, he got Hui Zong's coffin back. And Yue Fei, being an obstacle to peace with the Jin, was done in. And for his perfidy, Qin Gui was also done in. And from that, we all got Yu Tiao. I urge everyone to go visit the Yue Wang Miao, the Yue Fei Temple, if you ever find yourself in Hangzhou. And so, me little beauties, that's the story of Hui Zong. Patricia Buckley Ebri is the author. The book is called Emperor Hui Zong. You got a Laszlo Montgomery patented skim job only, so I encourage anyone looking for a bit more color and detail to go get that one. I have a link on my uh, website. So, what are we supposed to make of this emperor? On the good side, he was a, he was a champion of great causes, like you know, building a nationwide school system, establishing charities for the sick, poor, widows, and homeless. His sponsorship of so many great compilations of books, including works on medicine and, you know, everything he did for standardizing and compiling a new Taoist canon. His incredible sponsorship of the arts and literature spawned some of the greatest works ever. He did so much to reform court music. And even though it all ended up being carted away to Manchuria by the Jurchens, no other emperor could surpass Huizong as an artist or as a royal collector of art. And ceremonial objects, antiques, and books. But on the negative side, old Huizong was a little too full of himself and craved adulation. He fell victim to flattery and was easy to manipulate. His sense of his own invincibility was too great. He didn't listen to people he should have and listened too much to people he shouldn't have. Huizong had a habit of always ignoring good advice his decision to join the Jin in an alliance against the Kitan Liao proved a fatal error. And no one ever forgave him for his whole Taoism kick and for falling under the spell of Lin Ling Su during the you know, 1117 to 1119 period. In all of Chinese history, no emperor topped Huizong as far as hardcore adherence to Taoism, especially the sect that Huizong embraced. I mentioned Huizong's Northeast Marchmont Park that was built at a crippling cost. As I mentioned, that sure came back to haunt him later. And historians haven't been too kind to the so-called Six Traitors, who are mostly blamed for the fall of the Northern Song through their handling of Huizong. These were, of course, Tsai Jing, Tongguan, Wang Fu, Li Yan, Zhu Mian, and the eunuch Liang Shicheng. Yeah, some good, some bad, but what a life, don't you think? That would be a movie I could sit through. Maybe uh, 
Zhang Yimou will consider doing it. Anyway, that's it, everyone. We're going to fast forward 700 years for the next episode. I hope you'll consider listening. My good friend James Dampier in Canberra put out two nice ones uh, in his Aussie Waves podcast. Check out those May 4th and May 20th episodes on the Chinese and the Gold Rush and famous Chinese Australians. Penguin Books China just came out with a series of books under the Penguin Specials imprint, just in time for the 100th anniversary of the start of the Great War. Four books, four topics related to China's involvement in World War I, written by four authors, Mark O'Neill, Robert Bickers, Paul French, and Jonathan Fenby. Paul French, if you haven't read Midnight in Peking, go do it. He's one of my faves. Jonathan Fenby's The Penguin History of Modern China, The Fall and Rise of a Great Power, 1850 to 2009, a long stalwart in the China History Podcast reference library. If you haven't heard it already, catch that latest Seneca episode from May 30th. Kaiser, Jeremy, and David welcoming Jessica Beinecke. Yes, Baijia herself. Great show, everyone, and great talk about how important and effective individuals can be in building lasting bridges between nations and cultures. Tuttle Publishing, based up in beautiful Vermont, came out with a book called Chinese Bridges. These are the real bridges. It's a beautiful book, like everything Tuttle does. All the bridges in all the regions of China. The photos, history, and backstory. Check that book out, Chinese Bridges, by Ronald G. Knapp at TuttlePublishing.com. Ronald G. Knapp, of course, the author of so many beautiful and informative books on Chinese architecture, culture, and design. I'm off to Shanghai, Beijing, and Guangzhou, June 7th, uh, just a few days in each place. I hope you all enjoyed this four-part series on the life of Hui Zong. One last time, the book is Emperor Hui Zong by University of Washington professor Patricia Buckley Ebrey. This is Laszlo Montgomery once again signing off from the eastern edge of L.A. County, yes, the town of Claremont in the SoCal part of the state, wishing you all the very best, and I hope you'll join me next time, maybe, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.